Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tech Chat. Russ here, and I have Dr. Pete on the line with me as well. Hello, Dr. Pete. Hey, Russ, and hello, listeners. It's As always, it's awesome to be back on the show. And Russ, you know, we were reflecting about some feedback from our listeners just before, and uh, it's very humbling to be able to change so many lives and, uh, you know, give more than we take. That's right. We've had some interesting feedback from people talking about the different places that they listen to the show. So we've had people talking about, obviously, listening in their car when they're stuck in traffic. I think you had a chat with someone who... Um, Who's got a who job. Actually, got a job, that's right. Got a job on the back of listening to the show. That's right. And, uh, you know, we've warmed people's ears when they've been shoveling snow in North America, even though uh, most of our listeners actually come from APAC. We do get a large number of people tuning in from all over the world. Um, and we've also even had uh, feedback that we've been actually helping people interview uh, for jobs as well. Which is excellent. The other bit of feedback I got, which was nice, was the helping people to reduce the amount of reading that they had to do just to keep up with the, uh, the pace of change. So that was quite good as well. Well, with a thousand plus features and services being released last year, it's a lot of reading. So uh, hopefully uh, we're taking away the heavy lifting by letting you guys listen to us. So hopefully we can keep your ears warm with uh, up-to-the-minute up information from uh, AWS. That's right. And if you're sitting on the bus right now listening to this, uh, shout out at Loud Tech Chat in the loudest voice you can muster and see if there's any other tech chat listeners on the bus as well. <laughs> this, could, this could become a dating app. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. All right, so as always, we've been talking about new things coming and uh, this episode's no different, it's action-packed. And Russ, we've added more capacity to the global infrastructure. Tell us more about that. We have indeed, Pete. So we've added a couple of new edge locations for CloudFront uh, in both Tokyo and in Dallas. Fort Worth in Texas, mm-hmm. and of course, each new edge location improves performance and availability for um, for your applications, etc. Now, this is our fourth edge location in the Tokyo area, our third in Dallas, and that brings the total number of CloudFront locations worldwide to eighty-seven, and that includes seventy-six points of presence, also called POPs, and eleven regional edge cache cache locations. Now. People have said to me, Pete, what is the difference between a point of presence and a regional edge cache? And I mm-hmm. happen to know that talking about this kind of thing is second only to tagging as a thing that you like to talk about. <laughs> so tell us how an edge location is different to a regional edge cache. So thank you, Russ. So we, we talked about um, regional caches back in November 2016 when we announced them. Um, but let me let me demystify this. Okay, so so original edge cache caches are part of CloudFront, so our content delivery network, and they're also deployed globally. And the idea is to have this as close to your viewers trying to access your website. So these locations sit between the origin web server, which is your site, um, and the global edge locations that serve traffic directly to your viewers uh, of your content. So. As the popularity of your objects reduces, which are sitting inside the edge locations, the edge locations um, may evict those objects um, to make room for other more popular content. So 
what happens there is the uh, original edge caches continue to have um, your cached objects in them. So they have what we call a more cache width than the uh, individual edge locations. So your objects remain in that particular cache uh, longer, and these happen to be in the nearest edge, uh, in nearest uh, you know, geographic location closer to the actual edge locations. So this actually helps um, helps us to, to keep more of your content closer to, to your viewers and therefore reducing the need for CloudFront to go back to your origin, to your web server, to improve the overall performance. So right. when a viewer makes a request to get that asset, Russ, um, they will hit DNS, so hopefully Route 53, then Route 53 will redirect you to the uh, CloudFront Edge location. Uh, that is possibly the best one to serve the user's request. Now, this location typically is very close, it's low latency, uh, and in the edge location, uh, CloudFront checks its cache for that particular asset that uh, your user is trying to access. So if the files happen to be in cache because they've been already accessed previously, CloudFront would return that content from that particular edge location. That makes sense so far? Yes, I'm following. All right. Okay, cool. Now, if that, if the next request was to come sometime later, and the edge location found that it no longer had that object in its cache, it would then connect to the regional edge cache location, which is geographically closer to it, and say, hey, have you got the content? I no longer have it. If you do have it, bring it to me. So if the content is in the actual regional edge cache, it'll then be delivered to the edge location. And the moment the first byte arrives, in the edge location, it then gets forwarded straight onto the actual browser, the user that's trying to access that resource. So it's, it's very low latency and it delivers that content. And once that content's been delivered to the browser, that particular uh, object will again be cached in the edge location. Now, uh -huh. if, the, if, the, if the actual um, regional edge cache didn't have your asset, that's when it would, your, the edge location would connect to the origin server and fetch the content from there. Does that make sense? So the idea is to accelerate content. You know, if we were to use a hardware analogy, it's like a sec second level cache, like on, the, uh, like on the processor L2 cache, for example. It's all there to improve the performance of um, an access to your, to your content uh, so that you know, the information is still available uh, and it reduces the access to it. Now, Pete, I have two questions that often comes mm -hmm. up with this kind of thing. One is, is there additional cost for using this feature? Mm -hmm. And the answer is no, not at all. In fact, you don't need to do anything to your CloudFront distributions. Um, the original edges are already enabled by default for all your distributions. Uh, there's no additional charges, which is, which is awesome. Okay, great. And the other question is, if you send a cache invalidation request, will that mm -hmm. remove the object from both? Absolutely. So great question. So a cache invalidation, for example, you've got some content out there, a podcast episode, and you want to recall it back, you know, we've made a blooper, for example. So what you would do is you would actually, you know, um, cause a case, an invalidation, and that invalidation would actually go out to all the edge locations and caches. So in fact, um, the original edge caches have feature parity with the edge locations, so that whenever a object needs to be basically expired altogether, uh, it will no longer be available. 
which is perfect. And the other often questions that people will ask you is, um, what happens for dynamic content? Uh, and the answer is, we still pass through um, all of the uh, dynamic content, be it puts and posts and options and deletes, uh, directly to the origin servers. So dynamic content, uh, also which has you know cache uh, duration and you know um, time to live um, attributes, uh, all of those things are honored at both the edge location and the actual cache itself. So all the dynamic stuff is always fetched from the origin if you so demand it and request it. Awesome. So basically, you don't have to do anything to take advantage of this, do you? This just happens automatically. Not at all. Uh, of course, you know, if you use a CDN, you, you should start to become more familiar with uh, things like, you know, caching and CloudFront, in fact, has got a few extra tricks in its bag uh, that you may want to get across uh, to make sure you're maximizing its usage. Uh, certainly, you look at the console, see the reports that you can get in visibility into the uh, the, uh, the the cache hits and how well the CDN is actually serving some content because you might want to look at tuning some of it. Uh, highly recommend um, you know talking to the uh, your favorite solution architect if you are if you're struggling with getting your head around this. But uh, once you've done it and set it up, uh, quite often it's just uh, you know set and forget. But Pete, you shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't say talk to your favorite solutions architect. You shouldn't have favorites. We've said this, You're we've right. Talked about yeah. this before. It's That's like right. kids. You, you shouldn't have favorite children. They just, you just love them all equally. Well, like you should never have a favorite service, right? It's uh, they're all uh, they're all lovable. That's all it. Right. That's right. That's right. Well, well, speaking of loves, and you you are a big data loving guy. Um, you know, QuickSight's been doing some awesome stuff with EMR and Presto. Um, so, how is the world of big data, Russ? Indeed, Pete. So, for those of you not familiar with QuickSight, it is our visualization tool which allows you to very quickly get visualizations up and going. And we've had support for databases for a while, such as RDS and Redshift, and uh, you can put in uh, flat files from S3, et cetera. But obviously, the more connectors that we can support, um, the more widely this will be used. So um, in the show, we talked about uh, a couple of episodes ago that we've um, allowed QuickSight to talk to Athena natively now, which is, which is nice. And what mm-hmm. we've added recently is also the ability to talk to Presto and also uh, Apache Spark as well. Now, so Presto is the the open source uh, database um, or, or, or SQL type layer that came out of Facebook uh, that you can run on EMR or your own Hadoop cluster. And Presto actually also underpins uh, Athena. And with this new connector from QuickSight, you can run Presto or Apache Spark either on EMR or on your own uh, EC2 cluster you've got your mm-hmm. own self-hosted uh, Hadoop cluster. And you can then, from QuickSight, you can then attach to those and then run queries. So that's very, very powerful because that really allows you suddenly to start to visualize all the data that you've got um, you know, sitting in S3 or sitting on HDFS. Now, uh, as with QuickSight, there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can either query directly into those sources or you can actually extract data into the SPICE engine which is the uh, which I love this I love <laughs> I love this acronym. It's the uh, it's the su- it's the uh, super fast um, in memory calculation engine. Uh, another cache, uh, which then obviously gives you much much faster access to the data. Now there's a couple of prerequisites here, so you do need to have uh, both LDAP and SSL turned on uh, for Presto and Apache Spark. Um, uh, they're the two prereqs. But once you do that. Uh, you can connect QuickSight quite happily and start to start to visualize. Now, on the the big data blog, so AWS has a big data blog, 
um, that covers all sorts of stuff. There's lots and lots of posts um, that are really, really interesting. Uh, and if you're interested in this particular um, connector from Quickside into Presto, there was a good blog done recently that talks uh, about how to do it, how to get it set up. So if you search for AWS Big Data Blog in your search engine of choice, that will take you to the Big Data Blog and you can find the Quicksight to Presto uh, connector. Very, very interesting, Pete. Awesome, Russ. And I couldn't help but I had this big smile on my face as you were talking about these things. You know, you, you talk about my excitement about tagging and uh, new instances. Talk about big data spicing. <laughs> what a great... It's just but, I mean, it's it's just so you. <laughs> How do you consume that? I use spice. Right? spice I spice it up. I spice it up. <laughs> Indeed. Now, what about CloudTrail? Um, there's been some awesome activity around that with QuickSight as well. Yeah, so another addition to QuickSight is that it now supports audit logging with... Uh, CloudTrail. So what this means is that you can now log all of your user actions within QuickSight to CloudTrail, and obviously this helps for governance and compliance and auditing, etc. And so what this will allow you to do is basically ask the kind of who, when, what type questions that you want to, when you want to see, you know, when did people set up a, a data store, when did they pull data into Spice, etc., etc. Uh, now those logs are stored in an S3 bucket, uh, which you can then analyze. And here's the here's the kicker, Pete. Here's the bit I love. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. is that once you write those logs to S3, you can then look at them through Athena and QuickSight. Even better. So how's that for a kind of nice little bit of recursion there? Is you can, you can, CloudTrail can look at the logs from QuickSight and then you can analyze it using QuickSight itself. Wow. Talk about self-recursive uh, approaches to getting exactly. things uh, exactly. assessed and viewed and visualized. Very cool. All right, Pete, that's enough uh, for me from QuickSight. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the... Um, changes to AWS Microsoft AD. Yes, so if you are a .NET developer uh, or you really live in the uh, Microsoft ecosystem, then Active Directory is probably a very important part of uh, your world. Uh, so I'm happy to say that uh, we've been simplifying and assisting .NET uh, applications and developers to move and use AWS uh, Microsoft Active Directory. Now, for those that don't know what that is, the AD service from from um, AWS is essentially called AWS Microsoft AD, enables your um, directory-aware applications and operating systems and other resources to use the managed Active Directory in the AWS cloud. And the Microsoft AD service is built actually on top of Microsoft Active Directory. Um, and it doesn't require any particular synchronization or replication to your existing uh, directory that may be on-premises. But if you'd like, you certainly can create things like federation uh, and use the existing tools that you use today uh, while you're using the actual AD in the cloud. And um, you can hook it up to workspaces and work docs. And uh, I'm going to talk about Chime a bit later today. But uh, what we've done is we've actually enabled... um, additional features to help your .NET application to have greater levels of security in the cloud. Now, what that means is uh, you can now use the Group Managed Service Accounts, or GMSAs, if you're uh, 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 comfortable using the acronyms, as well as the Kerberos uh, Constrained Delegation Features, or KCD, uh, of AD with your apps. And I'm sure, Russ, you will ask me, what is GMSA? <laughs> and, I, w- I was going to ask I was also gonna ask you. I was also going to make a bit of a comment that that's not quite as good as Spice, is it? No. GM- no GMSA is not, it's not, doesn't quite have the same ring to it. And it doesn't quite roll off your tongue as easily as well, does it? No, no it doesn't. <laughs> so um, what GMSA is all about, it, um, it actually narrows the permissions for your account. And what that means is that it can actually reduce, uh, the, I guess, the, 
the surface that your accounts have um, by not using the built-in user accounts with full server control. So GMSA, um, so the managed service accounts, makes it easier to manage, say, .NET applications by creating them and the rotation of the account password is actually automated, Russ, so you don't actually have to do it. It does uh -huh. it for you. So basically you can have a single account that can be used uh, by one or more uh, applications on servers and um, what that also means is that uh, the rotation is done for you behind the scenes. It's kind of sort of like what we do with uh, uh, you know a key management service and uh, you know a certificate manager behind the scenes. All the rotations take place. So when you're using Windows operating system, basically um, the Microsoft Key Distribution Service uh, provides all those mechanisms uh, to securely obtain the latest key, uh, get access to the next key that's being rolled over uh, as a part of Active Directory. So this is this has been uh, in Windows Server 2020 for quite some time um, and uh, the way it works is the uh, the key distribution shares a secret a secret which is actually um, a key that's being shared around your infrastructure uh, and every so often the key gets rotated so that makes it very very simple for you not having to worry about that so if you're running a cluster for example of Windows servers um, and if you're running a cluster you probably want to turn it off if they're not really doing anything so in this case um, when those machines come back online automatically the oldest new machines can have an update to that particular new key so that you can have your farms rolled out uh, turned off turned back on and uh, that single identity that, uh, that is being used by machines to authenticate against um, are internally managed across the board. So if that wasn't enough, the other cool thing uh, that we've also provided is Kerberos Constraint Delegation, or KCD. Again, not as uh, easy to roll off the tongue as Spice, but... No, no, no good. What the, not good. But what that means for your, for the, for your .NET application in particular, um, or actually really other Windows applications in fact, um, is that um, the service restricts access only to the identity of the application user. So for example, when you use KCD, so your permissions for your .NET application generally reside for the entire application. Uh, in this case, the .NET application um, takes the, assumes the request of the user. So it looks at, for example, you, Russ. Russ will take your credentials and will pass those all the way through to SQL Server database. And your permissions as Russell, not as the permissions of the application, will be actually used to run queries. So that means that you can then enforce much tighter data access policies and controls um, when you are making requests by the application to the, in particular, database. And remember folks, uh, because you can you, you can join SQL Server under IDS to the domain, uh, that will actually make it uh, available to you end-to-end. -end. So your apps can authenticate against IDS uh, all the way through to SQL Server and those same credentials are fully functional. So very, very cool, which means the attack Excellent. surface gets reduced even further. Attack surface, I love that phrase. Attack surface, yes. <laughs> so this is available everywhere where we've got uh, Microsoft Active Directory service, which is... Uh, Almost everywhere. Fantastic. Now, Pete, uh, there's a couple of things in Workmail and um, and also in um, Marketplace I wanted to, to talk about. But before we do that, I just want to do a quick shout out to CloudTrail because we've just added the ability for you to send S3 data events that have been recorded by CloudTrail to CloudWatch or to CloudWatch mm -hmm. logs, I should say. Uh, now, obviously, you're going to do this because you want to do search or alerting or some kind of additional analysis. But what this means is that 
basically it will record detailed S3 object level API activity. So it's going to capture things like what's the account, the IP address, what was the time of the API call, etc. So you can really start to, to have a look at that because previously only management events uh, went into CloudWatch logs, but now both management and object level events will go in there and that's going to allow you to create alarms and uh, notifications whenever anything changes in your S3 bucket. You know, when I, when I think about this, Russ, you know, years and years ago, you know, uh, back in the days of being on-premises, you know, you couldn't do any of this. You know, people could just plug stuff in, access this and that, and, you know, people weren't any wiser about it. Whereas the more I look at these, uh, you know, features and uh, service improvements that we're actually releasing, um, you've got so much more traceability and visibility of, uh, of any nefarious behavior within your organization. It's yeah. mind-blowing. That, that's right. I think that's one of the things that a lot of customers are really impressed by is just that visibility, as you say, the ability to see exactly what's going on across your entire infrastructure stack. And you know what? Speaking of visibility, I, I love uh, naked pixels. Uh, and in particular, I like streaming of pixels. And that brings us to the next topic of uh, <laughs> Amazon Workspaces. Um, and for those of you who haven't tried it yet, please go ahead and push the button. Um, there's nothing like you know running your own virtual desktop in the cloud. Um, and uh, what's really cool is that uh, there's now, uh, at least in Sydney, this is happening in different parts of the world, but we now have um, the marketplace for desktop applications in the Sydney region. And uh, what's really nice about that is uh, software development vendors uh, can put up uh, their software just very much, very similar to the way you would have appliances in the AWS marketplace for virtual machines uh, and select applications and essentially you know, pay per use. So pick the application you want, um, have it delivered to your desktop as part of your Amazon workspace. So you select, uh, you can essentially even assign. So Russ, you know, we, we could have assigned applications that our administrators always want us to have. For example, mm. like a Microsoft productivity suite. So you know, Outlook and Word and Excel and PowerPoint, we can all have that. But then we could do some self-servicing and uh, get some additional applications for, you know, some graphics editing or you know, doing, you know, video modifications. Um, so all that stuff is now available to the end user in the marketplace for desktop apps. And I think that's really going to revolutionize how software gets developed longer term because, uh, you know, you can get things like Visual Studio. Uh, you can get things like Eclipse. So if you're a developer, uh, you know, in many cases, you don't even have to go off and install the software. You click a button and it gets delivered to your virtual desktop, which means you can work from the beach or from any connected device uh, that has internet access. Yeah, that's right. Just looking at some of the categories, Pete, you know, business intelligence, uh, CAD and CAM software, GIS and mapping, illustration and design, etc. project management. It's really uh, a really rich set of um, set of tools in there. It is indeed very broad. Um, and in fact, if you do choose the Microsoft Office uh, and, for example, run Outlook, um, I'm also happy to say that Amazon Workmail uh, now offers an SMTP gateway for sending emails. So if you are uh, already using Workmail, awesome. Uh, if not, uh, think of it as it's a secure managed business email and calendaring platform uh, for your existing desktop and mobile clients. So think of it as, you know, we do all the heavy lifting by running the back end. Um, in many ways, it, um, 
uh, you know, it's really simplified. So if you're running your exchange environment today, uh, you can quite easily do a migration to uh, Workmail. But uh, what we've now done here with this announcement is uh, in the past, Russ, you may remember, we'd have to use the simple email service as the uh -huh. outbound SMTP gateway for sending email. Now we've added uh, a new endpoint to the, uh, to the same uh, endpoint that you have uh, already for your Workmail, uh, just prefixed with SMTP. Uh, and we now give you the SMTP gateway uh, available to your applications, which means that you have now a broader range of apps uh, that you can configure with you know, only a couple of clicks and uh, uh, the prefix of the SMTP to the domain that you're trying to use for the mail transfer agent. So yeah, really nice to see that um, you can very quickly now control your email uh, workflows. And if you haven't tried it, uh, please check it out. There's a 30-day free trial for up to 25 users. Very nice. Very nice, Pete. Now, changing gears, uh, Russ, again, we, we can't have you not talk about EMR and Presto and Zeppelin and Think and Hue and a whole bunch of really, you know, perplexing, you know, names. Uh, so do tell us about <laughs> how does come together on EMR. Yeah, so just a quick one, Pete. As you know, we uh, really try and get the open source releases into EMR as quickly as we can so that our customers can get their hands on the, the new changes. So what we do is we typically... Uh, release a version of EMR that's got um, updates to certain of the the uh, open source tools, depending on what's what's changed. And we've just released 5.5.0 of EMR, and that's got upgraded versions of Presto, Zeppelin, uh, and also Hue. Uh, now, the Presto version uh, has got support for LDAP authentication. So this goes back to what we were saying before about using QuickSight against Presto. Now, because you need LDAP turned on for that, you will have to use the, if you're using EMR, you'll have to get the latest release of EMR so that Presto can support LDAP. And then the latest version of Hue's got a couple of nice things in there as well, changes to the SQL editor, timeline, pivot graphing, etc., uh, and also some email notifications for the Apache Uzi workflow completion, if you're using that. And uh, then there's also a couple of improvements to Apache Flink which is one of the streaming options, uh, and also stuff uh, around Apache Spark. And if you've been waiting for this, we've backported a bug fix for Spark 2.1.0 integration into Uzi. How about that? Very cool. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. And look, we can't talk about you know uh, data without mentioning IDS and Postgres. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the, uh, the new versions that are out there. Yeah, so again, just a quick one, but there's been um, uh, a... A few updates to the uh, to the Postgres database um, in the open source community, and so we've put those into RDS as well. Uh, so that's minor versions 962, 956, 9.4.11, and 9.3.16, uh, and just a couple of the fixes uh, have been around data corruption and index builds, um, uh, and support for PG Hint plan and and a few others. Now you can obviously spin up a, a 9.6.2 instance pretty quickly. Um, if, you, if you're doing that uh, for the first time, or you can upgrade an existing 9.5 RDS database instance just with point and click. If you're on an older version, so if you're on 9.3 or 9.4, uh, then you will have to go to 9.5 before upgrading to, to 9.6.2. So just a couple of hops there, but, uh, but yeah, lots of, lots of good stuff in, uh, in the new version of Postgres, Pete. Very nice. And it's always good to be fully patched up with the latest versions because uh, you never know what may 
pop out of the woodwork um, and you don't want to be the first to hit it uh, you hopefully can avoid it or maybe sidestep it by going to a newer version so yeah highly recommend <laughs> moving and don't wait too long uh, look uh, moving along uh, Russ what about the schema conversion tool and uh, you know what's happening in that neck of the woods yeah so we've talked about uh the schema conversion tool in the past, but just if uh, just a quick update. So there's there's two kind of uh, sister tools here. One is the schema conversion tool, which actually will help you to to change the the actual object. So um, create table statements, for example, from certain databases into another flavor of database, which is obviously something you need to do when you're migrating from one database to another. And then the other sister tool is called DMS, and that's the database migration service, which actually does a lot of the um, the replication of the data itself. Now, what we started to do with the schema conversion tool is broaden the functionality so it's not just about the updating of the um, of the schemas and the, and the data models, etc., but for certain of the, especially around data warehouse type um, database flavors, we'll also extract data from them as well. Now, we've had um, support for Oracle, Teradata, Greenplum, Nateza, and Vertica, uh, already in place, and we've also announced support for SQL Server as well. So this will actually allow nice. you to not just convert, but also do a full export from SQL Server. And there's a couple of options there for how you do that. So you can get it to just extract the data, you can get it to extract the data and upload it to S3, or you can actually get it to extract the data, upload to S3, and then copy into Redshift as part of your migration. So just trying to make that... Uh, that migration to Redshift a little bit uh, simpler, Pete. If you if you uh, if you're looking at doing that. Yes. So so Ross, I've always had this with these schemas of databases. You know, how, how do we help customers to map one data type in a schema to another? Because uh, that's pretty heavy. That's that's the tough stuff, right? And uh, the schema conversion tools helps you with that. Can you can you shed a little bit more light on that? Because some some DBAs I've spoken to in the past express some concerns around, oh, look, you know, those data types don't match to the other data type in the other database. Uh, yeah, help us to demystify that a little bit. Yeah, so that's exactly what the schema conversion tool is designed for, Pete, is exactly that kind of um, conversion where you've got potentially um, different reserved words, you've got different, um, different data types, different bits of syntax, etc. And so it will actually do that conversion for you so that you don't have to, to know what, what the data type uh, the data types that match are so that's yeah that's exactly what it's designed to do but to really help you with that process mm. and the other thing that also comes up when we talk about database migrations is you know how do people get through the front door to the database and uh, there's certainly been a bit of a big move now with things like API gateway building an API interface to the database and not connecting directly at uh, the database level so uh, if you are doing a migration you know talk to your friends in the uh, app dev space uh, and see what they're doing about perhaps going down a microservices path uh, to even abstract the database, which then helps to uh, you know ease that transition because you're not relying on connection strings, Russ. That's true. Actually, Pete, it's funny you should mention that. I was talking to a customer the other day, and we were actually talking about uh, talking about Lex and talking about uh -huh. setting up chatbots and things like that. And one of the things he talked about, he was actually on the kind of um, the the business intelligence side of his business, and he said mm -hmm. one of his visions is to to kind of broaden the, um, the business intelligence offering that he was giving to his users beyond just using visualizations, but also allowing them to ask for very specific metrics 
either through voice or through a chatbot. So, for example, if they wanted to know, you know, what's the average, um, what's the average cost of um, cost of the the sales that we've got going through the register at any given time, that would require a SQL query to hit the to hit the data mm-hmm. warehouse, and uh, it's only going to come back with one number, but it's going to have to do some kind of query at the back end. And so, we were talking about ways to actually um, trigger that, you know, from from Lex through Lambda. And then into um, into the database, and then get the results set back. So this is a really interesting kind of merging of, of BI and, and voice enabled, and, and kind of um, some of the um, some of the AI stuff we've been talking about. Again, just to reduce friction and just to really help people to get the information they need in a format that they they want to receive it. Yeah, no, and, and putting an API layer in front of a database is a great way of unlocking um, that data because you're essentially setting it free because anybody, mobile app, web, licks, um, you know, chatbots or anything else that you can build um, can interface to it. Yeah, great story, Russ. That's uh, right. Awesome to hear it. So uh, as much as it pains me to move away from the data space for a sec, Pete, um, <laughs> I know that you do want to talk about organizations. So uh, yes. tell us what's happening there. Yes, organizations, uh, please check it out if you already haven't. Um, but yeah, in, um, organizations essentially gives you the ability to have uh, policy-based management if you have multiple accounts. So um, you can create groups and accounts and then um, apply security policies to those uh, different um, accounts so that you can centrally control it through policies. So yeah, it makes life a lot easier. So um, with this announcement, uh, organization now gives you access to essentially visualize and see the email address of the member account that has been created. So quite often when an account is created, uh, you have to give it an email address. In fact, you always have to give it, otherwise we can't create the account. Um, Now that account, uh, that alias for that email address is now easily visible uh, in the console, but also um, if if you want to use the CLI, you can now very quickly query the service and uh, find out who exactly is the owner of the account. And, uh, you know, it's not so much if you've got one or two accounts and you happen to be the custodian, this is far more useful for large uh, organizations and managed service providers who might have you know, hundreds, if not thousands of accounts. Um, and uh, they want to find out exactly who the account owner is. Uh, and you can very quickly find that out through a simple API call or just looking at the console. Very nice, Pete. Now, while you're on a roll, slide from organization, segue if you can. I will. From organizations. See if you can segue from organizations <laughs> to ELBs. All right, well, let me do my, my little sidestep and my jiggle dance with the, uh, you know, part of the API conversation. If you unlock your data for APIs, just like we unlock our services, you can also unlock the elastic load balancer service limits. <laughs> so if you are building automated continuous integration and delivery um, uh, pipelines, uh, quite often it's really useful to find out how many more elastic load balancers are available to you to be spun up in your account. So by default, we give you 20 ELBs, um, both classic and um, the new advanced versions of them. Uh, so now you can query the API and uh, essentially you know, use, or use a CLI, you know, AWS CLI EB describe account limits, uh, and that'll tell you how many ELBs are available to you to, to spin up, how many are in use, and if you find that that limit is, um, you hit the ceiling, you can then log a ticket with us. Uh, in the past, you probably would have uh, either contacted support or had a look in the trusted advisor yourself uh, to better understand that. But that's, Russ, that's manual. That's so yesterday. Uh, you now <laughs> want to definitely use the APIs to find out 
um, exactly what's going on in your account and how close you're coming to the to the ceiling of availability. So yes, that's that's a segue. And now let me do another shuffle and, and talk about, you know, how can Rust do a, a pivot into the <laughs> AWS Deep Learning Amy? That's now available. Well, well, how about this, Pete? So you talked about, you know, <laughs> using the API to work out, you know, what your limits are and then cutting a ticket. Uh, I'm about to talk about the deep learning AMI that we have. It'd be great if we had some deep learning that could actually kind of just predict when you might need an increase. How about that? Well, look, if, if nice you look. use, you know, new engines like, you know, Cafe or MXNet or whatever else, uh, maybe you could. Yeah. Could you? Yeah. So you possibly could. You possibly could. So, uh, so the big news with the deep learning AMI, which, as you know, is an, is an AMI. So an AMI, if you're not familiar, is like a... Uh, an Amazon machine image or like a golden image of a virtual machine uh, that has got a lot of stuff pre-installed on it. And the deep learning one has got a number of different um, deep learning uh, projects on there. And we've just released a new version of that that's got Cafe 2 on it. Now, Cafe 2, if you're not familiar, uh, is a project actually led by Facebook. And uh, the original Cafe came out of Berkeley and then uh, Facebook took that, did a lot of work on it and have just open sourced Cafe 2. So Cafe and Cafe 2 um, are not directly compatible, but you can actually you can convert your original Cafe models into Cafe 2 if you want to. There's a utility script um, that can help you do that. But just um, you know, just keeps that deep learning AMI up to date with, with the latest versions of things, Pete, so that if you're into the deep learning space, um, the AMI is a great way to, to get up and running quickly. And it's worth adding that AMI is also available on the AWS Marketplace, as uh, I mentioned, hinted earlier. And Russ, what about simple queuing servers? That's just now had a, you know, an extra layer of security pushed in. Yeah, that's right. So as you know, simple queue service, or SQS, uh, is, is one of our foundation services. And what we've added there is support for server-side encryption. So what that means is that when you push a message into SQS, you can actually have it automatically encrypted once it's within SQS, and then we'll decrypt it um, when we pass it to the consuming service at the other end. Now, as you'd expect, this is tightly integrated into KMS, which is the key management service, which makes it very easy to use. So you can just basically, when you create your queue, you just say, "Look, I want this. I want to use the server-side encryption service, and I want to, I want to use KMS to store the keys for that." Uh, now, what that will do is it will encrypt the body of your message doesn't touch the queue metadata or the message metadata, um, but will encrypt the, the actual body of it as well. Now, Which you is really can, what you want. Yeah, that's right. You can, um, you can put this onto an existing queue if you wish to. So if you have an existing queue and you actually want to turn this on, you can do that. But just be aware that um, it's not going to encrypt any backlogged messages, only new messages that come in. And similarly, if you take encryption off an existing queue, it will leave the backlogged messages encrypted. Um, so so really nice, Pete. Now, one of the interesting things that comes up when you start talking about this is, is how often is the service going to hit KMS? So, because mm-hmm. obviously you don't want to be throttled at the KMS end to constantly exactly. get the keys for encryption yeah. and decryption. So what we've set up is that you can actually set almost like a, a cache time for the, for the keys from a minute to 24 hours so that the um, KMS won't get hit every time it needs to encrypt and decrypt a message and you can set obviously the, the time period there. And that's really that's important because now. then you don't want to be 
increasing the limits because you can also up, you know, increase the soft limits on KMS and, you know, Q, you know, SQS is meant to be about this, you know, lumpy, you know, ebb and flow kind of a model where it peaks and drops every so often, and you don't want to keep increasing your KMS limits for the highest possible ceiling, which you might not even know what that is. So that's a great feature, Russ. Yeah, really nice, and it, it increases obviously the security profile there because um, your both your producers and your consumers will now need to have IAM policies attached, which will allow them to actually access the KMS keys. They're going to be used for the encryption and decryption. So it just adds another another layer there for you. Now, I should mention that this is available in US West, so in Oregon and also in Ohio regions, and support for others uh, are in the works as well. So Russ, I've got a question for those on the bus. Put your hand up if you are using you know, server IAM roles. <laughs> who are listening to us because that's going to make it easier. Again, you don't want to bake those keys for those producers and consumers into your apps, right? Um, you definitely want to you know, rely on some rotation of that. So, uh, yeah, you are decoupling the key from your app, hopefully. That's right. Now, Peter, I know you mentioned um, Active Directory before, and there's been some changes to Chime in that regard, which I know you are chomping at the bit. Tell us all about. <laughs> you know, we should rename this episode to being the Microsoft Active Directory and then some show because uh, we've now don't, also don't yeah. relegate don't Shall relegate we? the data piece to and then some. That would be <laughs> that would not make me happy. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you know we've now added more uh, you know connectivity into the Amazon Chime um, service. Now, for those of you who uh, have already forgotten the last shows, uh, so Amazon Chime is a secure, real-time, unified comms service from us that uh, helps to transform your meetings to be more efficient and easier to conduct without the heavy lifting of running your own infrastructure. So Ambulance Chime has now added um, two new capabilities to simplify end user management. And of course, AD is one part of that. Uh, so first, you can now claim your corporate domain to use with Amazon Chime which means that any user that signs up for Chime using an email address that happens to correspond to your corporate domain is automatically added to your Amazon Chime account, which is very nice. So let's think of it as an auto-registration. And the other one is uh, you can also configure Chime to use your Microsoft Active Directory for user management and authentication, which means that it allows you to manage your users individually or in OUs um, and easily assign uh, Chime subscriptions to specific users in your organization uh, and apply you know, the existing password policies that you've probably already set and defined in Active Directory uh, to be also uh, compliant and followed by Chime. So it's a really nice way to be able to uh, tie that all together. So think of it as you know Active Directory and integration uh, and user management being really simplified. Uh, so basically when you claim your domain, uh, you know, those email addresses are really key because this actually allows you to manage those users into organizations centrally um, and essentially, you know, be able to see and assign the subscription types uh, for each of the user, including suspension of users who you may want to turn the service off for, uh, becomes quite you know, much more simplified. And if you are going to use your own Active Directory, for example, that's also an option. You don't have to use the one that's um, in the cloud, uh, whether it's managed by us or run by you. You can also run it on-premises. So you can use your on-premises AD and maybe set up a, um, the AWS Active Directory connector. And what the connector does is it allows you to establish a trusted relationship between your AD, wherever it may be, uh, and AWS. Um, so that basically you have connectivity just like I mentioned before. It, it will just plug in uh, like hand in glove. 
and uh, give us the good news about extra charges to use these features. Well, there are no extra charges. So the nice thing about it is uh, you continue to get charged for using Chime in the typical pricing structure that we've already got. Uh, but just because you happen to now uh, have a much easier way of uh, centrally controlling and managing subscriptions and users, um, it costs you nothing more. Fantastic. Now, Pete, AWS and Ionic have introduced mobile web and hybrid application on GitHub with exported mm-hmm. mobile hub project for deploying apps and mobile backend. That's a very, very long uh, kind of uh, press release. What, what is going on there? So, so for those of you who are developers amongst us, uh, put your hand up if you're on the bus. Um, you are probably very familiar what that's all about. And that's basically a way of building mobile applications uh, using standard web technologies like you know, JavaScript, Angular, CSS. Um, so we've worked with Ionic and produced a sample application that's sitting in GitHub. Um, and the reason for that is a lot of um, developers, especially mobile application developers, um, end up building the front end uh, on a mobile device and they use Ionic to be hopefully as device agnostic as possible. But at the end of the day, they still have to you know, do things like have user signups, sign-ins, manage identity, uh, you know, talk to a database, have a security model, send some messages, look at user engagement, all those lovely things have to be done somewhere and quite often that has to be done in the back end. Uh, so something like Mobile Hub, which is one, which is a service we spoke about earlier in the shows previously, um, is a great way to do that because if you use AWS Mobile Hub, if you've tried it, you can hop in and create applic- mobile apps really quickly for iOS and Android. Uh, so by working with um, Ionic, um, we've taken and exported one of the projects from Mobile Hub uh, and included all of the Ionic uh, you know, bells and whistles into that application, which means that this sample application uh, that's been exported, um, developers can now, can now take and improve upon. Uh, they can import it into Mobile Hub in the console with a drag and drop you know, interface essentially. Uh, and all of the backend services which we provision uh, generally via Mobile Hub will be recreated for that particular developer. Um, and you can then essentially go ahead and start consuming those resources. So it's a really nice way of helping mobile developers to uh, rapidly a, build applications, but also use the, the really powerful and uh, you know, user-friendly and highly visually, so a lot of eye candy, so talking of nice pixels, um, uh, via Ionic interfaces to be able to make those apps really usable. So uh, that's a great example of working together with, uh, with a part that actually um, is helping the developer community. So talking about developers, Pete, just uh, one more thing before we go, which is that Lambda has now just raised the default current connection limit. So yes. what that means is that, yeah, so, um, so obviously we have, we have a safety throttle on the number of concurrent executions per account, per region, and that's there basically so that um, accidentally customers don't spawn up um, uh, huge numbers of, of functions that they don't actually want. So we do have that limit in place for a reason, and that default limit's been raised to a thousand now. So you can actually have a thousand concurrent executions of your Lambda function. Now that is a soft limit, so if you need that raised, contact us and we can raise it. But uh, but that kind of default has been has been raised a little, which is quite nice. And look, it's quite a lot. When you think about doing a thousand things simultaneously. Uh, that means you are seriously on scale. And uh, in the past, it used to be in the hundreds, but we went, you know what? Let's just flip it to a thousand. And if you need, need to, if you need more, just log a ticket. Just let us know. So, fantastic. Well, I think that's enough from us for this episode, Pete. Lots of fun stuff there. 
And look, last 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 show we talked about Russell doing some developer stuff. How's that? Russell talked about Lambda. How cool. <laughs> yes. Yes, I talked about the concurrent the concurrent limit being raised. So I wouldn't say that I got deep into it there, Pete. <laughs> hey, you are you are, you are loving the uh, you know the encryption for SQS. <laughs> well, guys, thanks for tuning in. Uh, please uh, keep feeding us feedback. Love to know how we're uh, helping to make your life a little bit easier and happier by listening to us. And uh, tune again next time. Thanks, guys. See you soon. Signing off, this is Russ. And this is Dr. Pete. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.